All right, let's go ahead and pray, and then we'll we'll begin. Father, thank you for uh, today. I thank you that we can, at the end of the day, even though we're probably all tired and would rather be at home getting ready for bed, um, we can come here and we can take uh, part of our day to study your word with no threat of uh, of hostility, no threat of intruders. Um, and so we take a few minutes to just thank you for giving us guys like my dad and others who have served um, to protect our country. And so we thank you for their service and their sacrifice of themselves to uh, make this country an awesome place to live and a place where we can worship you freely and learn more about you. I th- thank you that we have the opportunity to open up your word tonight. Pray that you would help me to be accurate, that I would be biblical, um, that I wouldn't stand on my own opinion, but that I would stand on the truth of what you have to say. I pray that your word um, would go out in um, the supernatural power that you promise and that it would transform us from the inside out. I pray um, that I would be clear, that everyone would be able to understand what what your word has to say for them in their lives. And I pray that um, ultimately that lasting change would begin to take root, that your word would implant itself deep in our hearts, that it would, as we talk about in a little bit, that it would um, take up residence in us, that it would be comfortable there, that it would make its home there. And so I pray that you would help all of us tonight to hear what your word has to say and be changed by it. In your name we pray. Amen. All right, so the review sheet, I need you to cover up. <clears throat> and it is already up. So, the sweater's coming up. All right, so cover up the review sheet. Week one, conversion. How did we define conversion? So you're cheating already. <laughs> cover up the review sheet. This is not how I got through high school. Trying yes. to figure out which one. <laughs> Cover the review sheet. Dana, cover the review sheet. Good. All right. Conversion. How did we define conversion? A change of heart. Change of heart. Abandoning Cover. Abandoning myself and my... Myself and my sin, and embracing Jesus Christ. Two G's. Come on. Big G, little G. God and His grace. Okay. Five things. We're not going to go through all five things uh, in in specifics, but the gospel message, the essential elements of the gospel message, are on your hand. Five fingers. They start with God. God. Someone other than my dad? What? And? Okay. Man and sin. Third one? Kind of a big big deal here. (laughs) Jesus Christ. Then what do we do with all that? We call that response. And then the last thing is when we respond, there's what? No, that's the response. What? Promise. Right? So God, man and sin, Jesus Christ, response to all that good stuff, and then the promise of eternal life. So then week three, we talked about our position in Christ. We talked about union with Christ. We said that when we are united with Christ, we get a new experience and a new identity, or we get a new position, and we get a new practice. Hopefully that makes sense. And we talked about the present experience that we are in in a simplified way is called progressive sanctification, which is just the process of God making us righteous, holy, like his son Jesus. We said that that progressive sanctification is progressive, that it goes up, it goes down, but the overall trajectory of it is going up. We said that it's inevitable that God promises to do that good work and he will complete that good work by the time Jesus Christ comes back. But it is not automatic. We're not passive 
just sitting there in our lazy boy waiting for God to zap us into Christ's likeness, that we are along for the ride. And we also noted that it's tough. Then week four, to round out the first set of four lessons that talked about the gospel, we talked about water baptism. What is water baptism? It is a physical of a spiritual reality. So a physical symbol of a spiritual reality. What is the spiritual reality to which water baptism symbolizes or of which water baptism symbolizes? I just got them saying it in, in death, lesson burial, three. Death, burial, resurrection. Yes. Yes. But there's more to it than that, right? Because we're the ones being baptized. Right? So it's not just we, we go and and we're saying, look at Jesus. We're, we're going. And we are identifying with that, which is our blank with Christ. Starts with a U, ends with an N. Union, our union with Christ. It's a good trick that really works well with junior hires. It struggles with adults sometimes. When I spell it, I really struggle when my wife has to spell something as code language, so our kids don't get it. And then I'm like, I what? I have to like watch her lips, ask her to repeat it. And I have no idea. So then we transitioned into from the gospel of grace to growing in grace. And we looked at walking by the spirit. We said that the spirit of God is actually God himself. And he is indwelling, living in the heart of every believer from the moment of their conversion. So there is no such thing as a spiritless believer. Biblically, you can't substantiate that. Or you cannot substantiate a spiritless believer. And then we define progressive sanctification a little bit more fully in that week. And we said that it is a cooperative work between God and man, right? Then we started talking about the discipline. The first was the discipline of the word. Why should we study the word? What text did I use to support why we should study the word? All scripture is God. Okay, so that's 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. Just give me two reasons why we should study the word of God from that text. Because it's God-breathed. <clears throat> because it's God-breathed. What does that mean for every normal human being? In this room, because God breathes sounds like a really fancy term that I don't know what that means. It's inspired. It's inspired. What does that mean? Because I still don't know what that means. God's word. It's God's word. He it's wrote God's it. word. He so it. he's the author, right? So we should study the Bible because he wrote it. Give me another reason. That's how God. Because it's profitable for instruction. Okay, so there's this unique process to God's word whereby it results in what? Christ-likeness, maturity. Then we talked about how we should study the Bible daily, continual meditation, observing, interpreting, applying. And two weeks ago we talked about prayer. We said prayer is talking to God, not waiting to hear from God, right? We should pray because it's powerful, and so on and so forth. And then last week we talked about the church. How did I define the church? And there's many other ways that could we could define the church. So I don't think that mine is an awesome definition that should be repeated. But for the sake of it being my class, <laughs> it's a diverse group of people. Come on, I got you there. Well. So what's the opposite of diversity? Okay, so a diverse group of people unified into 15 groups of people? One. One body by how? By who? By Christ. So a diverse group of people unified into one body through Jesus Christ. What's the mission of the church or the purpose? Someone from that table because you guys have been quiet. Okay, to spread the gospel of Jesus. I give a slightly more fancy term or 
So making maturing disciples. Come on. Yay! Carol has shown up. Round of applause for being eleven minutes left. So you're gonna get to speak? Sure. Okay. So it's the making. So that would be the evangelism and the maturing, the equipping, or the salvation and the sanctification. Making maturing of disciples or followers of Jesus Christ who are becoming like Jesus Christ. And then we surveyed, if you weren't sleeping, we surveyed the entire book of Ephesians last week. And we looked at what the church was based on the book of Ephesians. And then I looked at uh, three ways in which the church helps us grow spiritually in our lives. I said, one, that we are being matured and stabilized by the unity and diversity of the church. Stop cheating. Number two. She opened the sheet up. I see. You still cheated. We are called and equipped by the church to live lives of radical distinction. You remember? And we looked at the chapter four, that second half of chapter four, all the way to the beginning of chapter six, in ways that our lives ought to reflect radical distinction from the darkness of the world around us. And then lastly, we persevere together in the gospel in the face of Satan's attack. So that brings us to lesson nine, which is tonight, we're finally transitioning to the last section of our, our curriculum tonight. <clears throat> And is this to discover the main opposition we face to our spiritual growth, the main opposition that we face to our spiritual growth, how that opposition hinders us, so how they hinder us, and how we can fight against them. So we're going to discover the main opposition, we're going to look at two of the three uh, opposing forces that we face, so I've already tipped my hat into... There's three, okay? (laughs) So, give me those three. What are the main opponents the Bible says we will face in our sanctification? The flesh. Okay, the flesh is one. The world. The world. The devil. And the devil. The world, the flesh, and the devil. Can anyone think of a text that might talk about either one or both or all three of those in one or, or... just give me something. Give me a text. <coughs> you all know your theology, obviously, by getting the answers right. We just don't know our references. First John two twelve through seventeen. Okay. The book. Okay. And which one does that talk about? Um, at least fifteen. Um, what through seventeen? It talks about the world. It says, do not, right? Is that the one that says, yep, do, do not love the world. world? Okay. Or anything in the world. So we got the world. We have two more. The flesh and the devil. 12. What? Ephesians 6.12. And that says, flesh and blood. And then principalities against powers against rulers of darkness of this world. But wouldn't that be kind of contradicting what we're saying? If the flesh is actually... But I think it's a different flesh. Okay, it's saying we're not fighting against our own flesh and blood, but we're fighting against the darkness, the ruler of this world, which is Satan. Okay, so I think that's really more referring to the devil. Then. Okay, so we'll talk. We'll give Jim that one <laughs> as the devil. So we need one for the flesh because that was not a uh, worthy text for the flesh. That would, might be the devil, but not the flesh. Because that flesh was actually talking about like the literal physical, like cells that make up your body. Okay, give me a some kind of. Reference somewhere, even a book. Okay. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Okay, the spirit is willing, the flesh is weak. Give me another one. That's even that might even be more obvious because. That one, that one's a little, because, right, that's Jesus. Does he have the exact, does he have a flesh 
in the he, sinful sort of enemy sort of way he that was we speaking to Peter. Yeah, but he's still <laughs> kind of talking about is he? Well, he could be talking about himself. He could be maybe talking about Peter. What about Galatians five? Right, there's this fight between flesh and spirit. There's a war that's constantly going on. So Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 3, let me read it, and you can just jot it down and you can look at it yourself. But it says, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sin, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world. So there's one. And of, so imagine it says, when you follow dot, 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 the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. So we have the world. We have the ruler of that evil world, Satan. We have the world, the devil. And then if we keep going on, verse 3, all of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving or objects of God's wrath. So in that, those three verses, we have the three main op, um, opponents to our sanctification. The world, the flesh, and the devil. So I ask you, what in the world is the world? So Ephesians 2, Paul says, we followed the ways of this world. What is he talking about? Normal, sinful mankind. Okay. And the directions, their goals, their hopes. Okay. It would not make sense, correct, to say you followed the ways of planet Earth. Right? We can't say that. What about, so that would be like a Hebrews 1 2 where. He's talking about the glory and, and radiance of Christ, and he says Christ actually was part of making the earth. Or John three sixteen, God so loved the world. Did God so love? What is he saying? He, he loved the people, right? So is is Paul saying he followed the ways of all the people that dwell on the planet Earth? Maybe getting a little closer, right? What can do that? So what, what what is it? The ways or the ways of the world, the, um, the things that the world cares about. Okay. The people care about in the world. Okay. The believers. Jot down these two texts: Romans chapter twelve, verse two, and First John two fifteen through seventeen. Romans twelve two and First John two fifteen through seventeen. <clears throat> Listen as I read Romans 12:2 says do not conform to the pattern of this world. He can't be meaning planet earth and he cannot be meaning just simply and merely the the, the people on the planet earth. So Romans 12:2 do not conform to the pattern of this world. 1 John 2 verses 15 through 17 do not love the world. Wait, it can't be don't love the, the people because he just got done saying one of the hallmarks of a true believer is that they love God and then they do what? Second greatest commandment is to love, love others, love your neighbor as yourself. So he can't be saying do not love the world, do not love people. He's saying do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in him. So whatever the world is, it can't be the planet. It can't be just the people. It has to be something. There's something inherent about whatever this world is that is diametrically opposed to God. Right? Yeah. Right. Mark 8 even says that. What shall I profit <clears throat> he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? It's a system. It's. It's. I don't know if you can call it a belief, but it's just it talks in the Bible about Satan being the ruler of this world. And it's totally against the opposite of where 
God wants us. Okay. So let me give you a, a modified version of Pastor Ken's definition of the world. The world may be defined as this, sinful values expressed in culture. Sinful values expressed in culture. And the only modification I made is that he says fallen values. And I'm changing that to sinful just to make sure that we're all clear. Fallen is sinful. (laughs) So sinful values expressed in culture. So the world... It's not just the planet. It's not just the people on the planet. It is sinful values that are expressed in culture. So we have the world. So what's the flesh? Desires. Okay, so do you think that the flesh, if we went all the way back to Ephesians 2, does this sound good? All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. So I think you're both are right because you're talking about what we value. We're talking about our desires. But does that sound good? Mm-hmm. Does Paul is Paul posturing the flesh in a positive light here? Is he is he painting it in a good way or a, a negative way? Negative. In a negative way. So, how would we define flesh? Wasn't she saying worldly desires? I don't. I I only heard desires. I, I, desires. Yeah, I would say <clears throat> sinful, worldly. You know, maybe okay. things that people too like the world was what be set apart. Right? Okay. Our sinful nature. Our sinful nature. Yeah. Okay. And that's what we are. If we're not, well, we can be in Christ and still sin. Right. But. Apart from Christ, we were born into sin. So our nature is our flesh. Okay. Did you say operating on your own resource? There could be like good-looking flesh. Explain. Like if you're doing something maybe secretly for a motive that looks good to you, but I know why I'm doing it. That could look, that's a good thing, but it's not. My motive isn't for Christ, so that'd be like a good, I mean, we can all recognize that flush. I don't know, I'd have to think about that. Okay. <clears throat> so Galatians chapter 5, verses 13 through 25. <coughs> I won't read it all, but verse 13, do not use your freedom, freedom from the law, Freedom in Christ, freedom to love. We have the ability to to love. Do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. And he goes down to verse 16 and says, So I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. And then, here's the key, verse 17. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They're in conflict with each other, so that you are not to do whatever you want. And then it goes down and it gives the evidence of flesh in the life. It says the acts of the flesh are obvious, sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions and envy, drunkenness, orgies and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. So the flesh is not a good thing. It's worldly. It's sinful. It's our sinful nature. Romans 8, you can jot this down. We're not going to take the time to read it, but I encourage you to. Romans 8, verses 1 through 17. 
But Paul there talks about how the flesh sets its mind on what the flesh desires. And those who live according to the Spirit set their desires on what the Spirit desires. The mind governed by the flesh, Paul says, is death. But the mind governed by the Spirit is life and peace. You get the picture, right? Whatever we define the flesh as, it is hostile to God. It is in opposition to God. So I would attempt to define, just for sake of keeping it all together, I would define flesh this way. Inherent sinful values expressed in me. So what is my flesh? My flesh is inherent sinful values expressed in me. And I say inherent because we're all born in Adam, right? We were all born sinners by nature and by choice. So even though, Lord willing, all of us have repented and believed and become new creatures in Christ, we all still have this sin nature that we drag around, the remnants of our old identity in Adam. Even though the slave, our slavery with sin has been broken, as we talked about weeks and weeks ago, we still have the sin nature. Why? I can't explain all that. Why did God leave us here, stuck in this sin-cursed world with sinful propensities? I don't know. I can't give you all... None of the answers really satisfy me. Like, So I can be a testimony to other people? Well, that stinks. I'd rather just be glorified. But he did. And it's obvious from his word that... We still have that struggle. So the flesh is defined as our inherent sinful values expressed in me. So if anyone's thinking along the same lines I did this week, which I'm sure none of you are, because I think oddly, but can anyone connect the dots then between the world and the flesh? How do they relate to one another? Think about my definitions. That might help you. I don't know. Maybe no. Sinful values. Okay, so there's... common thing. Okay, so we have sinful values expressed. That would be a common theme. But how do they relate to one another? They're both against God. Okay, they're both against God. What's the world made up of? Me. Yeah, it's a bunch of me's, right? The world is a bunch. So what is the world? What is that that what are the what's that culture? All the world is is all of us, a bunch of me's expressing our inherent sinful values. And though then those things get all pulled up together and we get the mess that we get, right? I mean, think think about it this way. These, the, the people that have similar values tend to stick together, right? So what do we, what do we see that's kind of a big ticket item right now? The homosexual movement. I mean, they, they stick together, right? And then you see this massive explosion of the expression of their sinful nature in culture. What is that? It's a bunch of me's expressing my inherent sinful values. So let's break down that definition. Sinful values expressed. Because I want to make the I want to make sure for you and for me that we actually fully get the weight of what this is. That we don't just leave it in this theological definition of the world and the flesh, but that we hone it down into like the real life of you and me. Sinful. That means Opposed to God, anti-God, contrary to his character. So sinful values. What are values? It are It's things that we hold dear. It's something that we esteem highly. So sinful values. Values, things that we hold dear that are opposed to God. Think about how contrary that is to the character of being a Christian. How can we as Christians hold something dear that is opposed to God? Right? That that's fundamentally flawed. That's fundamentally inconsistent with 
who we have been declared to be and who we are to strive to be in this life. <coughs> and it's sinful values that are expressed. They're made visible through our behavior, whether seemingly less significant in our action or our attitudes or seemingly more severe in our actions. <coughs> so let's put it together. So a sinful value is anything, even something good, that I hold more dear with more esteem or value higher than God. Let me repeat that. A sinful value is anything, and it can even be something good, that I hold more dear, that I hold with more esteem, or that I value higher than God. What is that called? Idols. Yeah. It's called idolatry of the heart. It's called idolatry of the heart. Jesus says in Luke chapter 6, verses 43 through 45, that our idols that we house in our hearts will be expressed. They will be expressed. Listen as I read Luke 6, verses 43 through 43 through 45. No good tree bears bad fruit, and no bad tree bears good fruit. Each tree is recognized by its own fruit. People do not pick figs from thorn bushes or grapes from briars. A good man brings good things out of the good stored up in his heart. And an evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in his heart. For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. So in other words, what comes out of in my actions and in my attitudes is what comes from my heart. <clears throat> Paul Tripp is used. I love Paul Tripp, as I've told you already. New Morning Mercies. It's a great devotional book. But Paul Tripp, in, he's used this illustration numerous, numerous times. But when he and his brother were very little kids, they were at a family reunion. And at this family reunion, he was stuck in the basement with his drunk uncle. And apparently their family was quite dysfunctional, like the, their large family, not just his immediate family. And his drunk uncle was in the basement saying sexually perverse things. And his mom somehow figured this out, marched right down there, grabbed them, and he likes to say that their feet never hit the stairs. <laughs> threw them in their station wagon and drove off and said, what comes out of the mouth of a drunk was always in the heart of a drunk. What comes out of my mouth and what comes out in my behavior, what comes out in your mouth and what comes out in your behavior is always started in your heart. Yikes. How do we identify an idol of the heart? Look for the things that we are willing to sin against God to get. What are you willing to sin against God to get? And that will be a good starting place to identify the idols of the heart. <clears throat> so the flesh, the world, sinful values expressed in the culture and inherent sinful values expressed in me. And all that the world is, is as a bunch of me's and you's expressing our inherently sinful values, the idols of our heart. So, what? How to identify, look for things. Look for things that you're willing to sin against God to get. And there you will find your idol. What are you willing to sin against God to get? And I will not go into examples of things because you can all figure that out yourself. So how do the world and the flesh hinder your sanctification? How do the world and the flesh hinder my sanctification? And obviously, undeniable fact so far is that they're both opposed to God, right? So that means they're both opposed to your sanctification and mine. So, how do they hinder, how do they oppose your spiritual growth and mine? <clears throat> and this is not a rhetorical question, so 
You have the floor. They keep us focused on things that do not lead to our growth, which is our desires. just because we have a desire for something doesn't make it bad. I don't mean to say that. Right. Sometimes our desires can be good. God gives us good desires. But mm-hmm. when the desires are just what you said a second ago are so important to us that we're willing to put God's word and God's inherent desire in us on the other road, then we're not good. Okay. Well, if you're not working towards, if, if you're working towards some other idol, you know, money, or uh, I'm not going to name all, I mean, certainly, you know, anyway, if you're working towards an idol, it's distracting, that means you're not working towards where you need to be. Okay. Sort of like a broken fellowship with God, right? Okay. okay. Else? Adding to what they said too, that can um, lessen your desire to read God's word. Okay. And like you feel like if you feel your broken fellowship, um, sometimes you, you might get in a spot where you're like, I mean, where do you start, kind of thing, with. Um, you just think you're um, I don't know like if you're lukewarm that kind of thing and it's just um, yeah we just we're not going in the right direction just just what you guys said yeah let me give you several ways that I I meditated on this week just with respect to the world how does the world hinder my sanctification? It appeals to self. The world, remember, it's opposition to God. And it's a bunch of other sinful, uh, inherently sinful that people's values expressed and then organized. And, and all of that, it, it appeals to self. Another thing, it promises satisfaction. I mean, I think Scripture gives ample support to that, that that sin is just a passing, fleeting thing that promises that it's going to fulfill, but you have a continual lust for more because it doesn't actually give you the satisfaction. It's a dead end. Yeah, it, it's, a, it's a dead end that's like a revolving dead end that just... You keep pursuing and you're not unsatisfied. You keep pursuing and you get temporary satisfaction, but then it goes away. It appeals to self. It promises satisfaction. The world seeks to indoctrinate us. Right? That's what this whole concept of a worldview. For those of us that have kids, we want to instill in our kids a biblical worldview. Because if we don't instill in them a biblical worldview, they're going to get... A secular worldview, an anti-God worldview, a worldly worldview. And the world seeks to indoctrinate us in its sinful values. I think the world also grants us permission, doesn't it? It, 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 it appeals to ourself, it promises satisfaction, and then it makes sin look really desirable, and it says, it's okay. Right? It, <laughs> It, it calls us and says, it's okay to go ahead and do this. The consequences aren't going to be that bad. I think it also fosters appetites. It fosters your appetite and my appetite for sin. I mean, I can't watch a football game with my son without having to figure out a way to flip the the channel on our non-cable TV to something. (laughs) Because half the commercials, I don't want my 
innocent son seeing. Because it will foster appetites that are good appetites. Like a good appetite one day that he'll have for sex. I don't want that to be tainted in him. So it grants permission, it fosters appetites, and it offers us opportunity. It just shows us opportunity after opportunity where we can then express our inherently sinful values. So it appeals to self, it promises satisfaction, it seeks to indoctrinate, it grants us permission and makes us feel like this is an okay thing to do. It fosters our appetites and it offers us opportunity. But what about the flesh? I just have one thing that I've teased out probably too long. But what is the flesh? That's like the place of temptation, right? The flesh is the center of temptation. All that stuff is external to us. But the place of temptation is not out there. The place of temptation ultimately is in us. So ultimately, no matter how great the onslaught of these external obstacles, the decision to sin rests solely and squarely in the heart of you and me. As Paul Tripp likes to say, your greatest problem is not outside of you, but inside of you. You and I can never say that it is someone else's fault or something else's fault when we choose to sin. It's not your husband's fault or your wife's fault. It's not your friend's fault. It's not the TV's fault. It's not the creditor's fault. It's not your boss's fault. It's your fault if you choose to sin. It's my fault if I choose to sin. So we must stop blaming other people and other things. Other people and other things, listen carefully, might provide the occasion. They might provide the occasion to sin. (coughs) So when your husband acts like a complete and utter doofus, women, they provide you ample occasions to sin. Right? But they still do not make you sin. They might make it very easy for you to sin, but they do not make you sin. But they never make you sin. Nothing ever makes you sin. The choice to sin is solely and squarely in your heart and my heart. If you disagree with me, then please look carefully with me at James chapter 1, verses 13 through 15. James chapter 1 verses 13 through 15. James writes, When tempted, no one can say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. God does not tempt you. But listen carefully to verse 14. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desires and enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. You see, I hate to, I I would love to play the blame game, because that would be so much easier, but the reality is that you and I are our own biggest problem. So what is our hope? (laughs) I mean, this is such a bleak, depressing (laughs) lesson, right? Enemies of grace, the world and the flesh, we're stuck in this stupid, sin-cursed world that just has all these occasions to sin and all these calls to sin all around us. And as, I mean, it's just frustrating. And rightly so. But the greatest problem isn't even outside of us. It's inside of us. So what the heck do we do? What's our hope? Is this something that we can even fight? Yes. And if so, how? So is there hope? Yes. Yes, there's hope. Where's the hope? In the Spirit. In the, in the Gospel. In the good news of Jesus Christ coming and dwelling in our hearts in the, in the person of the Holy Spirit. If you're a Christian, we've talked at nauseum almost about the fact that you have a new nature. Right? When you were regenerated, that's when you were given spiritual life, when you were spiritually dead. 
You were born spiritually dead, but the Holy Spirit moved on you and gave you spiritual life. And when he gave you spiritual life, he gave you a new nature with a new ability to please God. The Holy Spirit of God, the third person of the Trinity, indwells you. He lives inside of you, working with your new nature to eradicate the old junk that you still got laying around in your heart. And in fact, as Romans 6 said, and as we've looked at, I believe, two or three times, Romans 6 is undeniably clear that our slavery to sin has been broken. That does not mean we will no longer struggle with sin. That does not mean that sin is not powerful. Our sinful desires, if we're all honest, are very strong. But they are no longer our master. They are no longer the dominating force and power in our hearts. So, how do we combat this? How do we fight? We must relentlessly, ruthlessly, tenaciously, in a pool terminology, cutthroat sort of way, you go out of your way to to eradicate, like in cutthroat and pool, you eradicate everybody else. And we must eradicate every vestige of sin in our lives. So we must employ a multifaceted approach. If sin is that, like, just ingrained and rooted in our hearts, we've got to, like, take a big, huge hacksaw and just start chopping and do so severely. I mean, I'm, I'm always reminded in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus talks pretty explicitly about the depths or the the degree to which we should go to eradicate sin, right? He says, if your eye causes you to stumble, it would be better that you pluck that stupid thing out rather than you burn in lake of fire. Cut your hand off. He's not literally saying go do that, although that might not end up being that bad of a thing if you had to do it, right? But he's saying radical amputation. Get to the heart. So if I could... Offer some, how do we fight this? Let me just offer some positive things. I don't know if that's the best term, but here are a couple things on the positive side. Number one, foster affection for God. How are we going to fight sin? Foster your affection for God. If we love God, our our love for flesh, our love for world will will be a, will go down. Right? Because we're, we're, we're loving our love for God, which is opposed and contrary to the world in our flesh. Our affection for something greater and holy is, is, is growing in strength. And we are willing then to sacrifice ourselves, what that instant source of gratification of the flesh, for the sake of the glory of God. That's true love for Him. <coughs> Mark 12.30, you could jot down. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love the Lord with God, your God with everything you got. With all of you, love the Lord your God, Mark 12.30. So one, foster affection for God. Number two, fix your eyes on Jesus. <clears throat> Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders us and the sin that so easily entangles us. And let us run with perseverance the race marked out before us, verse 2, fixing our eyes on Jesus. Why should we fix our eyes on him? Because he's been there and done that. He is the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorned its shame, and sat down enthroned at the right hand of God. He accomplished the good work. He survived it. So consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Fix your eyes on Jesus. So foster affection for God. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Number three, let the gospel take up residence in your heart. Colossians 3, verse 16. Let the message of Christ, the gospel, 
dwell among you richly. The idea there is that it takes up residence. It's at home in you. If the gospel is at home in you, that means that you are taking on its character. It's feeling welcome inside. I mean, my mom, I shouldn't say this out loud, I've never been a huge fan of her home decorating style. But, and my dad, you cannot say that to her, and I know she won't listen to this, but... I'm writing it down. Yes. But, the one thing that I will always... I will always applaud my mom for, no matter how she decorated, she always wanted her home to be a comfortable place for guests. And she always accomplished that. That's what we ought to be for the gospel. A comfortable place for the gospel to take up residence. I think this is number four. I'm losing track of the numbers because I don't have it written down. But based on Ephesians 6, verses 10 through 20, be strong and equipped with the word and prayer. Because as Jim alluded to earlier, we're in spiritual warfare. Not against flesh and blood. Not against other physical beings. But there's this whole warfare out there that's trying to take us out. So we must be strong and equipped with the word and prayer. I could be at the risk of sounding a little corny, trust and obey. If we trust God, we will obey God because we know ultimately that He is God. He, he, he knows what's best. And when we disobey God, we show that we don't trust God. So when I have personally dealt with major bouts of um, battles with anxiety, while there's certainly potentially a physical, like chemical side of that that could be existing, there's also this component of I must trust God and obey God. And when I don't obey God, I'm showing that I'm not trusting Him, right? So our obedience is the evidence of our trust. Our disobedience is evidence of our distrust. So that's positively. Now let's flip it to the negative side. I I hate to use that term, but what in the world are we supposed to do from the negative side? Mortify this junk. Mortify sin. That is, kill it. You think, well, I can't do that. Well, Scripture calls us to. Romans 8.13 and Colossians 3.5 say that we must put to death our sin nature. Romans 8.13, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. Colossians 3.5 and 6. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, Evil desires and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. We must kill sin. Put it to death. We must starve sin. We must starve sin. Romans 13, verses 12 through 14. We should starve it. What do I mean by that? I think it was probably the King James or maybe the New American Standard that said, make no provision for the flesh. The NIV says it this way, and do not think about how to gratify the desires of the flesh. In other words, not only are we not going to actually do the stuff, we're not even going to allow how we're going to do that to be entertained. We're going to make no provision. We're going to give it no opportunity. We're not going to give it thought on how we can express our sinful nature. What was that reference? Romans 13, 12 through 14, specifically verse 14. Mortify sin, starve sin. Three, deny self. Matthew 16, 24. This is in the context of where Peter denies Jesus, or Peter and the disciples are arguing who's the greatest, who's the greatest, I think. Maybe I get it wrong. But at some point in time, Jesus finally says, turns to Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. And then, who wants to be the greatest? He must deny himself, 
take up his cross, and follow me. Deny self. Because those who want to save their lives are going to deny themselves. They're going to lose their life for the sake of Christ. But those who want to lose their life to want a good life now, they'll, they'll go after it, but they're going to lose it in the end. So we must deny ourselves. <clears throat> and lastly, on, I guess kind of on the negative side, not really, but in humility, confess and repent. In humility, confess and repent. It's not enough just to acknowledge the fact that what I've done is a sin. It's not enough to just say, yes, God, I have just got angry. That's a good thing, and that's a good step, but it has to go beyond that. A true believer is marked by repentance. And repentance, as we noted, repentance is not just simply an acknowledgement, right? There's a decision to turn away, right? That's why we define conversion as a change of heart, right? <clears throat> the positive side is embracing God and His grace, but the other side is we're saying no to ourselves and our sin. So we must confess and repent. And then I would say holistically, so we have positively, we have negatively, and then I would say holistically, if I could put it this way, we remove, renew, and replace. We remove, we renew, and we replace. So we remove the old junk, we renew our minds, renew our hearts through the Word and through the Spirit, and we replace those things, those voids, with good things. So we remove... We renew and we replace. Ephesians 4, 22 through 24. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new or to be renewed in the attitude of your minds in verse 24, to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. And if you look at the entire context of that, you also look at the entire context of Colossians 3. We remove, we put off all the old junk, all the sin. We renew our minds and then we replace it with good things. Like Colossians says, clothe yourselves in humility. Love others. These are the, the good qualities. We put to death the misdeeds of our sinful nature. <clears throat> so, is there a fight going on on the turf of your heart? Is there a fight? Because if there is not a war, if there is not a war, there's a problem. But not only is there a war, are you yielding to the Spirit and obeying God and His Word? Is that a consistent, not perfectly, but is that the consistent, remember, the overall progressive trajectory of sanctification? Is there a trajectory of sanctification that is upwards towards Christ-likeness? Are you yielding to the Spirit's leading to obey His Word? Is that fight not necessarily getting easier, but is that fight, are you are you just totally given in? Are you a slave to that fight, or are you obeying God? Do you see victory? When you fail to obey, are you humbly repentant of your sin? Remember, that's not just confession. Are you turning away from your sin? Or are you stubbornly, pridefully defensive and obstinate? If you're humbly repentant, that's a sign of belief. That's a sign of spiritual life. If you're stubbornly, pridefully defensive and obstinate, that's a sign of disbelief. That's a sign of at least unhealth. Let me encourage you, though, in the negativity. God's standard for you and for me is not perfection. And you think, wait, wait, wait a second. God says, be holy. Yeah. 
But why does he say confess your sins? Why does he say repent? Why does he say there's going to be this war? God's expectation here in this life is not perfection. It is pursuit. It's perseverance. God's expectation of you and I is not perfection. It's perseverance. And the key to perseverance is humble repentance. A life of humble repentance is the way to persevere. We see our flesh. We see the world. We see us as God sees us as sinful. But we also know who we are. And so we repent of our sins and we turn from our sins because we love God and we want to please Him. Is there a fight? Are you yielding? Are you humbly repenting? Are you persevering? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. I pray that your word, not my opinion, but your word would would touch down in my life, that it would transform me, that it would make me a humble man, that it would make me a godly man, that it would do so in everybody's lives here in this room. That your word would shape us, that we would fall on our face before your word and say, your word is true and your word is right and I must obey because you are God, you are creator. In your name we pray, amen.